Real Marathon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I'm Rob Carraher. And I'm Danny Carraher. And this week we are doing sort of a double feature uh, review week. We are doing David Lowry's newest, The Green Knight, which was released last week uh, to wide audiences. And then we are also going to be going back and looking at his critically acclaimed film, A Ghost Story. And so that's kind of how we're going to finish the show. And we thought that this would be um, kind of a good uh, double feature because uh, it would be fun to really compare between the two films. And uh, we've discussed that because both of these films, um, there's a lot to dig into. Uh, that for the a ghost story portion of our show, it is going to be filled with quite a few spoilers um, for both the Green Knight and a ghost story. We'll try to keep it as spoiler free as we can while we are discussing uh, the Green Knight. So if you haven't seen it yet and just want to hear our review, you can listen to that and then shut it off by, before going to onto the a ghost story review. But before any of that, this week was another giant week for releases. Uh, we have a whole bunch, so we're going to kind of go down a list of the, the films that are released this week. Um, a few of them we have seen, uh, so we may give you a little bit of a, a background into what we thought of that film. Um, and, and then we'll kind of discuss some of the ones we're excited about and ones that we, you know, can kind of throw away. So... Uh, the big release this week was another Warner Brothers release that was released in the theaters and on the HBO Max platform, and that is The Suicide Squad. Uh, this film has, for a DC, specifically a DC uh, superhero type movie, has received pretty good reviews. Currently has a 7.8 on IMDb and a 74 Metascore. I know Danny did get a chance to uh, catch up with this. I have not yet, um, but I plan on, on catching it within the week. So Danny, would you uh, kind of explain a little bit what you thought about The Suicide Squad having seen it? The Suicide Squad is much better than Suicide Squad, which is the previous film in this series it's almost like this is a soft reboot of that original movie that came out about four or five years ago this is a again it does a lot of the same things that you would expect of kind of a superhero movie but because it has that r rating and because it is uh villains at the center of this story and they really lean into the comedy this time around it does have a little bit of a different feel i would say the first maybe 20 minutes I wasn't so sure about how I felt about this but then as we kind of settled into some of the characters specifically the Idris Elba character you really get into this movie and uh, it, it's there's some laugh out loud moments in this movie that are just really good and I think something that James Gunn does really well is he is writes interesting characters and gives them cool backstories and um, he spends the time in the movie to actually give that 
moment to each one of those characters. And so I think that's the real critical difference between this and uh, Suicide Squad, the previous one. And it's funny that it's just the difference of the Suicide Squad versus Suicide Squad. So I ended up giving this a seven out of 10. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think that it's one that if you are kind of a fan of these types of movies, go ahead and watch it. I think it's um, interesting to kind of see this take. And I think also, James Gunn does bring some creative creative um, storytelling to this uh, world that we haven't really seen yet um, in the DC universe specifically. Um, I'm really interested in seeing this this movie. I, uh, I I have tempered expectations. I think a lot of times with these superhero um, type movies that there is a little bit of fan-based inflation uh, that goes along with these releases and a lot of times I go into a movie that is kind of lifted up with higher expectations and so I have tempered expectations I expect this to just kind of be a fun entertaining uh, movie that uh, I may end up enjoying quite a bit um, but I, I feel like that 7.8 uh, 74 range seems to be um, probably a, a pretty solid range. Did you say what you ended up giving it? I gave it a seven out of seven. Yeah. So that, that kind of fits right where uh, the general trend is. And, you know, a seven for a superhero movie is pretty solid in my opinion. I think that uh, we've, we've talked about in the past how um, there are certain genres that kind of have a level of uh, ceiling that it's really hard to kind of break through that. I think we got spoiled a little bit with Christopher Nolan's Batman movies in that they, they kind of crossed over into being something more than just a simple superhero uh, story. Um, but as a whole, if you can make a movie that is in that seven range for me, I think that's a pretty big success for a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Um, another big release this week that, you know, it, it's interesting because it, it didn't seem like it was going to be a big release. And then uh, in about the last week, I started seeing some promotional material for this. And it is Vivo, which is an animated film released on Netflix. Um, and it stars Lin-Manuel Miranda. He does some of the music for it. Um, and it's just another addition to the uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda saga of 2021, where he seems to be getting his hand in everything. Um, and this movie currently has a 6.8 on IMDb and a 65 Metascore, which for an animated film, that seems a little disappointing. Um, but I feel like maybe that, that tempers expectations a little bit. And uh, I'm very interested in seeing this film. Have you seen a trailer or any information about this, Danny? It's funny because I remember us talking about this a while back, but I have not seen anything. And maybe I have. It just hasn't caught my eye um, at all. But yeah, it seems like th- there hasn't been much coming up to this release well this is a sony film um and it's interesting because it clearly netflix and sony have kind of created this deal for netflix to release a lot of their animated films with mitchell's versus the machines um then they had one called wish dragon uh that was also released on netflix and now this um and i saw a a commentary on twitter uh where the person 
having this conversation or beginning this conversation was disappointed in how Netflix has essentially uh, probably cut off at the knees a lot of these films that uh, probably deserve a little bit more of promotion. But the business plan for Netflix is they have so many movies that they are releasing all the time that they just don't have enough resources or kind of screen time to advertise for a lot of these films. And so it's going to be an interesting narrative um, to see play out if uh, these production companies like Sony are going to start um, choosing to not release their movies on Netflix if they feel like Netflix cannot give them the promotion that they deserve. And I feel like uh, Mitchell's and the Machines kind of came out at a good time when there wasn't as much being released and there weren't as big as big of movies. And so it, it kind of got the promotion that it needed in order to be successful. But now these movies like Vivo and uh, Wish Dragon probably um, should, should get a little bit more. Uh, and you wonder how many good movies, although I guess cream, the cream kind of rises to the top, as they say. Uh, so if, if these movies are really good, they probably will get the promotion they deserve, but um, you wonder if they get cut off at the knees a little bit. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty likely. And the other thing that is a different factor this year is I think Netflix has their biggest release schedule this year that they'd ever have. And I remember at the beginning of the, the year, them talking about how they have a, a movie releasing every weekend of the entirety of 2021. And I don't know if they've ever had that before. Um, so it's, we're just entering a totally different phase. And I know we say that every week, it seems like we have some conversation about one of the streaming services, but I just think that that's true. It, it continually changes the, the world of movies. Um, something else that I kind of noticed this week as we move into um, some of the, the next slate of movies here is that a lot of movies are getting limited uh, releases in the theaters one week, and then a week or two later, they are releasing on video on demand. And I find that to be really kind of interesting how, how that is playing out, um, simply because it that to me is sort of the game plan that I would want to go with moving forward, understanding that they're trying to get their movies out to more uh, viewers and they still want to be able to have that, that theater release, but also um, give others an opportunity to see some of these films well beyond uh, the, the scope of some of these theaters. So uh, Annette got a limited release this week. And then uh, here in a couple weeks on the 20th will be available to Prime subscribers. So we are going to be reviewing that, that film uh, the weekend of the 20th. Uh, in addition, you have John in the Hole, which was a, uh, a film that we saw at Sundance that's getting a release, both video on demand and a limited theater release this weekend. Um, and then there is a movie called Swan Song, which is uh, 
I think it's like a drama, maybe a little bit comedy um, that is getting a limited release this week, but next week you can get it on video on demand. And so I'm seeing this trend. And uh, I think that it's interesting because that seems to be for these smaller movies, kind of the way that they're going to be released moving forward. Um, and it's not as big of a problem for them because they know they're not going to make a bunch of money in the movie theaters, but it may be that uh, kind of model for maybe some of the bigger releases that they'd be looking into doing something similar to that. Um, maybe not in the exact same way, but something similar to that moving forward. And we've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we'll talk about Annette when we review that here in a couple weeks. Uh, Swan Song is probably the one that uh, I'm the least interested in out of all the movies being released this week. It does have a 7.5 and a 64 meta score. Um, maybe interesting, but uh, unless like there's a, a huge narrative surrounding why I should see that film, I probably will not. But the both of us did see uh, the film John in the Hole at Sundance. And I think it was a movie that um, we were pretty excited about seeing. Like it, there was a lot of buzz around it because it seemed really interesting. Uh, it had kind of an interesting cast. Um, and it currently has a 5.8 on IMDb and a 64 Metascore. Um, what did you think of John in the Hole, Danny? It's one of those movies that, you can respect the craft of it and you can recognize the um, potential that this director has. And I, his name is escaping me right now, but. Uh, Pascal Sisto is the director's name. And, but at the same time, it is one that is pretty uh, inaccessible, I would say to most audiences. And um it makes you scratch your head in a way that isn't good for the movie. It doesn't, it doesn't challenge you in a, I would say a productive way. I think it is challenging in a way of, well, does that really make sense? I'm not sure. I really understand what it's saying or trying to do. And that I think is maybe why it is deserving of getting that score of five or six um, based on what you said. Yeah, I ended up giving it a six uh, and I wanted to love it so much more because there are things about it that are pretty fantastic. Uh, the cinematography is absolutely excellent and I would love to see more work from this cinematographer and maybe this director if, uh, if he can maybe get a slightly better narrative. Um, but the thing I think that's disappointing about this is it seems to be going in a certain direction and that you're going to get some resolution and it just doesn't feel like you ever get that with this film. Um, and this may be a good movie to bring up again during our discussion of The Green Knight and A Ghost Story because there are elements that are very similar um, in the way that, that they are kind of trying to tell a story. And uh, I think that's interesting, but um, I think this may be a good movie to bring back up as kind of a juxtaposition and um, where we may or may not like certain aspects of how a story is told. For sure. And I think that there are definite connections we can make between David Lowry and this, this director. 
for sure. Um, so we, we may return to this here in our discussion on our, our movies that we're reviewing for this week. The last three movies that uh, are released this week are all documentaries. One has already been given a, a theatrical release, but is moving to Amazon Prime this weekend. And that is Val, which is the Val Kilmer uh documentary and that was one that we both talked about as wanting to see so i haven't caught up with that yet but it currently has an 8.1 on imdb and a 73 metascore um and that makes me really excited to uh try to sit down and watch that here within the week um so hopefully maybe next week we can maybe have a conversation about the documentary val uh did you want to say anything else about that before I move on to the next documentary here. I'm just very excited for it. I think Val Kilmer is one of the maybe underrated actors of our, of our history. So I'm excited. Yep. Uh, same. Another documentary that is, was released in limited release this week is called bring your own brigade. And I believe that it is a, a film about uh, the wildfires that have taken place over the last few years, specifically in the Western part of our country. Um, I didn't get a chance to catch this at Sundance as a documentary, um, but it has a 7.5 on IMDb and an 81 Metascore. Um, it will re re get a video on demand release here in, on the 20th of August. So that is one that I hope to catch up with. I feel like this is the sort of movie that Oscar goes for. Um, just kind of like there, there's these kind of human interest stories uh, about people doing something or having to deal with a uh, tragic and um, extreme situation. So I think that this may be very interesting and one that very likely is going to get a, a lot of award uh, attention as we move forward. And it's very much of our time too. Um, right. And I think that that's a big appeal for the Oscars as well. So I'm excited to see this one as well. I think it is maybe something that could be enlightening in a way that I maybe already thought I had an idea of and bring some new insight into what this issue really is about. Yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent accurate just because yeah, it's something that here in the Midwest, we don't have to deal with as much. We'll get uh, impacts of smoke coming into our area, but it's not something we have to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, to, to kind of see on the ground what these folks are dealing with uh, may be a, a very enlightening experience. And then the final documentary that uh, is releasing uh, this week uh, video on video on demand is a documentary called Whirly Bird, and it follows uh, this couple in the 80s and 90s in Los Angeles that uh, essentially they they would go up in a helicopter and they'd cover news from uh, from kind of a bird's eye view. And so I think that this could be very, very interesting um, if they really captured some pretty astounding things that maybe uh, other um, news organizations are or the government is not is not covering. And so I think this has an opportunity to be a really interesting documentary. It does have a 7.2 on IMDb and a 68 Metascore. Um, it also kind of feels like it could be an awards uh, caliber type documentary just because of its interesting nature. Yeah, and it, it, with documentaries, I would say 
usually the premise alone is pretty interesting. It's just whether or not that premise continues to tell a story. And um, I mean, the same goes for uh, the bring your own brigade as well. It could, it could be an interesting premise that just doesn't go anywhere. And so that's kind of where the, where I'm, I'm hoping both of these will be good. So yeah, we got we had a big slate this week in terms of uh, movies that look interesting, and so there's definitely now a bunch of stuff that, uh, that anyone can see, um, and so it's going to be a a, uh, a fun <laughs> next few months here as we try to catch up with some of these things. Um, next on uh, next week's show, we are doing another Wes Anderson film but it may be worthwhile for us to reserve the second half of that show as a place to maybe talk about some of the movies that we uh, are trying to catch up with or the, the smaller releases and, um, and have some smaller conversations about some of these films that each of us have seen, even if we both haven't seen the everything. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that might be what we were looking to do for next week. Uh, as kind of the finishing touch on our show, um, just to make sure that we are really talking about some of these films that probably deserve to be talked about. Not a lot of people will see some of these. And so if we can highlight some good stuff, uh, I think that might be, that might be great. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I want to talk about news wise that kind of came out this week in terms of award season is that the Gotham Awards, which is an independent, uh, they, they give awards to independent films each and every year. Um, and it's one of the very first awards that are given out, because uh, I think that they are given out in late October. Um, and so this is kind of newsworthy that they have decided to do away with their gender specific acting categories. And instead, they're going to have one big uh, leading actor category with uh, 10 nominees. And that could be anywhere within that gender uh, or any gender. So it doesn't have to be specifically male, male or female. And it like kind of allows for this um, progressive move that we are heading toward as a nation um, where you know, we're, we're not concerned with males and females, but rather just uh, rewarding people for, for their work. Um, and it's, caught, it's caused some controversy. And I can see both sides of this conversation, um, but I think they are headed in the right direction. My only concern, actually, I have a couple concerns. One is, it's eliminates categories. So you don't get to award as many winners um, unless they're planning on giving two awards for each category. Um, And in that case, there's sort of a watered down feeling feel to it. Um, So that, that is a concern. The other concern is that it may end up creating a situation where you are not, uh, lifting up some of these performances that you had previously in an industry that has been heavily favoring men for many, many years. And we haven't quite hit that equal place where women are getting their, their due. 
Um, you could have a situation where you nominate eight males and two females or seven males, one non-binary uh, individual and two females or something like that. And then it, it creates this whole new problem. And so I do have some concerns in terms of that. And I don't know uh, what things that they will put in place to ensure that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, I, in a way, I, I feel like this is a conversa conversation that should be had and that there may be some more interesting ways to go about this. Um, I, I can see both sides to this too. And I, I think that both of the points that you bring up are valid. I would say on the flip side of that, we've had many years, and this is, I'm thinking of the Oscars specifically, but just in any category or any award where there's a, a weaker field. And so you're like, man, this best actor category is not very strong this year. And it allows for a little bit more strength of field because uh, you just get kind of the best of that year. Um, and so I, I think that that's the positive of it. I also do think that the exclusivity of being male versus female doesn't consider non-binary actors. Um, and so I think that that is worth having uh, at least trying for this year and just seeing what we think of that. And I, 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 I think this will be interesting and uh, it'll be interesting to see if other, um, other academies do the same thing um, or other awards do the same thing just because uh, we are, it does, it does feel a little bit uh, antiquated to do the male and female category. While I, I like the tradition of it to some extent, I also recognize that there's room to grow maybe there as well. Yeah, that's something that I thought about as uh, this kind of played out um, is that a, a org an organization like the Hollywood Ford and Press may be in a really good position to adopt something like this as they are trying to uh, rebrand their image so that they can make a comeback. And in a way, I hope that the Hollywood, Hollywood Foreign Press um, is able to do so and start to really put forth uh, good steps um, to recognize a diverse group of people. But because of the way that their awards have always been set up with uh, splitting the drama and comedy slash musical into two different areas. I feel like they may be in a really good position to take that next step and just make straight categories of performers for each of those. And you still get the opportunity to give out the same amount of awards. Um, and, but you, you uh, then can really highlight certain areas on both the comedy and musical side and the uh the dramatic side and i think there is a lot of room to uh really recognize people in both of those genres because but but they haven't done a great job in the past of doing so because there are a lot of performances on the comedy side that really should be recognized that just don't end up getting recognized. Right. So that might be a way of doing that. And uh, I think that the Hollywood Foreign Press trying to say, hey, we've grown. We recognize that we have been discriminatory. This would be an excellent way to kind of bring a return and show what you can do 
um, without uh, completely erasing uh, that tradition. Mm -hmm. And then the, the only way that that would work for them in terms of rebranding themselves is they can't then just go ahead and nominate like 10 white actors. Right. <laughs> but, part, but part of this is also like part of their rebranding has to be that they, they have to bring in uh, more diverse members. And if they bring in more diverse members that are interested in seeing films that are made by people that look like them and people that share the same cultures as them, then hopefully we start to get more of that. Um, because there are a lot of really great movies out there that don't have the uh, the budget behind them, um, simply because of kind of this patriot, this white patriarch uh, industry that we have created that that benefits white males in their in the films that they are making. Um, and so I think if you bring in more people who are part of that voting body that are interested in seeing some of these lower budget films, then it starts to kind of even the playing field a little bit. And that's what it's going to take. But the problem is that it just has been moving too slow. Um, and even the Academy is having that problem, too, where they're, they're bringing people in, but they're not bringing enough in um, to really start to balance it. Um, with that said, I think that they've done a better job in recent years of at least uh, having more diverse perspectives at the table. I mean, the fact that they gave Parasite the uh, award for best picture a couple of years ago, that's a big step in the right direction as we are starting to bring others' perspectives uh, to the mainstream. So anyway, this is obviously a conversation that we'll continue, uh, we'll continue having going forward, especially as the Gotham Award nominees are released, and then we see who ends up winning these awards and how that works out. Um, until that happens, we, we simply just do not know. Um, before we move on to our reviews for today, is there anything else that that you wanted to talk about? Any other movies that you saw this past week that you wanted to chat about a little bit? Uh, I haven't watched a whole lot of new movies other than The Suicide Squad, but I have been trying to catch up on some Scorsese movies just because there's a ton that I haven't seen. I was going through his his features and there's like 17 that I hadn't seen before and he has a ton of movies. so. I saw two of them this week. Um, I saw the movie Mean Streets and uh, Goodfellas. I'd never seen Goodfellas before. And there, there's so much that you can like about Scorsese, but I think, and I liked both of the, the movies, but I think that the thing that has always been a disconnect between me and his movies is I just, I'm not super into gangster movies. And that has always been, and I know he does other movies. He's not exclusively does gangster movies, but that's what he's known for. And that has always been, I think, uh, an issue for me getting in, invested in his stories because most of the time his, his characters aren't people that I like, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, there are really great characters in his stories and they're fun to watch, but you don't get invested in the same way uh, that you do in some of his other other stories yeah i think uh scorsese is an interesting director because it is impossible to deny 
that his craft is some of the best craft that the industry has ever seen and that he makes very visually interesting movies that look good and he gets some really good performances out of his actors. Um, he definitely leans on certain genres a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, I think you are right in that in nearly every single one of his movies, it feels like he's not interested in telling stories of good people. Uh, he, he likes to tell stories about um, people that probably are more on the bad side. Like if you were looking at kind of a, a Venn diagram or like a, a chart where you would categorize these, they're going to be more on the bad guy side um, more often than they're going to be on the good, good guy score side and it makes it hard to empathize with these characters which makes um the buy-in for some of his stories a little bit more difficult uh, especially when it is a two and a half to three hour movie which most of his movies are um, he makes very, very long movies. And so if I don't care about the character to sit through a three hour movie is very, very painful um, when there's not that kind of uh, buy-in at any point in time. And then you don't get that uh, kind of cathartic release uh, that, that you're waiting for um, simply because you just don't really care about a lot of his characters. And um, I think that is my main issue with Scorsese films. Not to say that he hasn't made some extraordinarily good films. Uh, like I absolutely love The Departed, but part of The Departed, the part of what makes The Departed so great is that he has created rich characters that you care about. Mm -hmm. I mean, a hundred percent. There's, and he he's definitely interested in characters that are being pulled in different directions and that's why they're always interesting um but yeah it's i think that is always a disconnect and also just because i i am not into the genre of gangster movies as much as a lot of people are and um that that is just on its own is kind of a turnoff to me sometimes yep all right well uh that concludes a the first portion of our show where we kind of go over some of the things that uh, have come about in the last week. Um, when we return from this break, we will get into our review of The Green Knight. So stay right there. Oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. Whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm. Its glory and riches shall be thine. But thy champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder, to the Green Chapel, six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return, be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat. I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. 
Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? And we are back. That was a clip you just heard from David Lowry's latest, The Green Knight. Uh, this is a film that is uh, based on the Arthurian legend, The Green Knight, and tells the story of Sir uh, Gawain, or however it's pronounced a billion different ways in this, this film. So uh, <laughs> whatever you want, however you want to say it, I think is fine. Um, but this is King Arthur's reckless and headstrong nephew who embarks on a daring quest to confront the Green Knight, a gigantic emerald skin stranger and tester of men. Uh, Gawain contends with ghosts, giants, thieves, and schemers in what becomes a deeper journey to define his character and prove his worth in the eyes of his family and kingdom by facing the ultimate challenger. From visionary filmmaker David Lowry comes a fresh and bold spin on a classic tale from the Knights of the Round Table. And so um, before we get into this, I do want to preface uh, all of this by saying, despite the fact I am an English major, uh, or, or I am an English teacher and have taken many, many classes in English classes or in my uh, English um, academic career, I never really read a lot of the uh, Arthurian stories and uh, that um, <laughs> kind of made this a little bit more challenging to understand what was going on. Um, I'm very intrigued by them. I just never, ever really got into them. And the only stories that I know are the ones that have been emerged as part of pop culture um, in a lot, in some of the, uh, the, Arthur's like the sword and the stone and that sort of stuff. So uh, I didn't have a lot of background on this. And to be completely honest, I wish that I had prior to embarking on this journey. Um, and it may have really kind of lifted up what I thought about this film. So I'm going to turn it over to you and kind of let you uh, explain some of the stuff that you you thought about the film and uh, start our conversation there. Uh, I think that that's a really great way to start this conversation is just framing it within what we already know about the Arthurian legends. And um, I, I, there's so much to like about this movie. I think that the visuals are at the highest point of that list. Um, and just the cinematography and how they just decide to tell this story visually is just amazing. Um, but I think its biggest, uh, I don't know if you want to say flaw or issue is that it, I think relies on the audience, maybe having some knowledge of these characters in order to get some buy-in um, or maybe not even buy-in, but to just understand what's going on. And uh I think that that might be where the biggest hurdle is with this movie and trying to overcome it. I, I ended up giving it an eight out of 10. Um, and so we'll go into why I gave it that score, but um, I, I kind of want to start by talking about just the visual aspect of this movie. There's so much going on uh, that all the time within this movie, there's so many details. And I think that, 
um, the way that we see the movement of the camera, especially even from the beginning, just really setting the tone. There's a lot of either over the head shots or low angle shots that are following the characters. And you really get a good sense of who Gawain or Gawain is at the beginning of this movie. Uh, it, he's kind of low, lowly knight. He's not even a knight really yet. And he's just uh, kind of, in this position because he's related to the king and he's a drunk and he's doesn't have much going for him and there's just they do so much to really establish that he's nothing really special but at the same time the cinematography already kind of gives this promise of something epic or something grandiose about it um and so there's a cool juxtaposition between what the camera's doing and what we're actually seeing on screen. He already seems bigger than life, even though he's kind of this low, uh, lowly uh, person in the, the round table. table. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to see what you think about the, the cinematography and the look of this movie. What'd you think? The cinematography is the best aspect of this film. Uh, that is what makes it the most interesting and they do some very, uh, I guess, interesting things in terms of the way they choose to visualize um, the events that are happening throughout the entirety of the movie. Uh, immediately, immediately when the film starts, I am drawn in by the cinematography and I already am bought in because of the way that the movie is shot. And ultimately the way that it is edited with that cinematography, um, specifically at the beginning of the movie. Um, and it, it's just that there's nothing that's quite like it. And something that I, I think that this is the sort of film that deserves to be nominated uh, for cinematography awards. But I've started to kind of think about this in terms of a lot of times we leave out movies like this that maybe aren't quite as accessible um, to wider ranges of audiences. Um, and that's not fair because this is craft at its finest. The film looks good, the way that it captures landscapes uh, the way that it has a lot of close-ups on characters and captures sort of the emotions. Um, and then just the way that it follows these characters around is absolutely extraordinary. And this is the same cinematographer that, uh, that Lowry uses for a ghost story. And uh, I think it's interesting because there are aspects that are similar, but th this film is shot very, very different from that film. I mean, we can get into that a little bit more when we're talking about a ghost story. Um, but I think that that even further um, kind of lifts this up as a great cinematography feat. Uh, and, and so the fact that the cinematography is so good, I also give this movie an eight out of 10 and when this movie ended, I admit that I'm kind of like, what the heck happened? Like, what, what is this movie? Like, what is this about? And when I think about a movie like John and the Hole, where it ended and I was very turned off by that, for some reason, this movie, I loved it. <laughs> and I don't entirely know why. And I think that that is a testament to David Lowry's skills as a director in the vision 
that he put forth, despite the fact that it is not accessible. Mm -hmm. And you said a couple things that I want to touch on. The first thing is that talk about the you you said that you you see close-ups in the movie, but you also see great landscapes. Something that I maybe we can talk about it a little bit more with Ghost Story. I was going to make a connection later, um, but he does big really really well, and he does small really really well. And what I mean is that like you get the scope of these like the epic of this story. And like, you feel those epic moments of this is bigger than life. This is a story that's bigger than us. But then you also get those like human, really intimate moments well. And I think, and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. That's something we will talk about with a ghost story as well. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing that you mentioned is that question of ambiguity at the end. And that is another thing that makes this movie, I would say, special in a lot of ways but it's also it's interesting because we can at its at its core this is a, a movie about a uh, person that's challenged to do something that will basically prove themselves as a knight that's that's what we can say and from that perspective this movie's really simple yeah that that story is core to what they're trying to say the entire time about what it means to be a knight, what it means to have honor, what it means to have courage, all of those things. Um, I think the issues might come when it feels like sometimes with that simple story, it feels like it's overcomplicating it at, at times. Or maybe that the visual spectacle is, is so impressive that like at times we lose sight of that simplicity of the story. And I don't even know if that's a problem with it because I enjoy where it goes and where it meanders to so much. There's maybe one sequence in the movie that I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, and it has to do with the, a scene where there's like these giants walking across this, that, that, that part I wasn't able to rectify really within the story super well. Um, but other than that, I didn't mind the meandering and all the complications for how the story ended up becoming pretty, um, simple. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about too, and cause we kind of started this conversation with talking about our familiarity with the Arthurian legends. This is actually weirdly one of the stories that I was required to read as a uh, undergrad in college. And so um, the, the story itself, and I think that David Lowry took stuff from multiple Arthurian legends, but the actual story of Gar Sir Garwin and the Green Knight is basically the beginning scene where the Green Knight challenges him all the way up to, uh, it, it, it doesn't have anything in between and it skips right to uh, the sequence where he's with the Joel Edgerton character and the Alicia Vikander, char Vikander character. And that's a huge part of the story as well before the climax. Um, the interesting thing with uh, that Alicia Vikander scene and Joel Edgerton scene is even though that's such a small part of the story, it feels like that is, 
I don't know, like it, 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 when I think about the movie, that's maybe one of the more memorable sequences of the movie. Maybe it's just because I think Joe Edgerton and Alicia Vikander are such great actors and I just wanted more of them or I just really, I don't know, there's something interesting or engaging about that sequence. But what did you think of uh, that aspect of the movie, that part of the, the story? Yeah, so I after the movie, I actually did do a little bit of research into the the initial story, and uh, David Lowry takes some liberties in the way that he tells a story and throws a completely different interpretation of kind of what happens here. Um, but yes, that part of it was very intriguing, and I think it is a lot because of the performances that we get. Um, the performances in this movie are very, very good. Uh, and it, it's kind of unfortunate because it almost the, the film begs for more from these people. Um, it, it, these performances are maybe uh, a little under their ability. And I think that that is somewhat disappointing, but you can't really necessarily blame uh, the film for because it, it, that isn't what this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, that the sequence or the the scenes when they get, when he gets to this castle um, are very very interesting. And uh, yeah, I want I wanted a little bit more of that. Like I would have liked to have seen um, more in that environment. And uh, based upon what I know about the actual story, I think that. David Lowry maybe could have taken that narrative a little bit further and really driven some things home um, that frankly would have made the narrative more interesting. Uh, And we just didn't get all of that there. And I think that um, it, it almost cheapens what the purpose of having those characters in the film actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, because they didn't give them, he didn't give them their full, uh, their full story. And as I think about this, and even though this is a very simple story that could be told in a short time frame, if if need be, this almost would have benefited from being a limited series. Um, so you really get to develop these different sections because the film definitely has different sections that that give the, the a completely different feel and it would have been fun to get full like 40 minute sections of these the, these stories so that we we have more of that buy-in and maybe the messaging of what it is trying to tell us and what it is the lesson learned there is maybe maybe more out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once again, we kind of come back to the store, the story part of this in that it clearly is trying to say something, but I don't really know exactly what it is trying to say beyond kind of the basic storyline that we already talked about. Mm-hmm. And in a way that intrigues me more and maybe part of why I love it um or I really liked this film because it's so thought provoking and it it is clear that he is trying to say more but is leaving it up to us to kind of interpret what that is he's trying to say and once again I'm going to go back to John in the hole where with John in the hole I felt like it got over and 
what he was trying to say was not accessible for this film, even though I didn't know it right away. Like it felt like it's something that I can access. Like mm -hmm. if I think about it a little bit longer or I watch this again, um, that I'm going to be able to access some of those bigger ideas or those uh, kind of side themes that uh, I didn't get to access the first time around. And uh, it's almost like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sort of the filmmaker that David Lowry is. He's creating these cinematic puzzles for us to be challenged as viewers to really sit with what is happening in these films long after you leave the theater. And yeah. to the point where you are interested in coming back and watching it again, because you want more, you want to get more from it because it's so layered. There's so many layers with this movie that you can peel back and you can look at it through different lenses and come up with an entirely different interpretation of what is being discussed. And in a way, uh, it, this, this film feels very Shakespearean um and uh, at times maybe even biblical in its interpretations and uh that's really really appealing to me um and yeah so i think it kind of comes back to the the scene at the castle and how like i just want to kind of tear it apart and uh really look at every little piece individually and piece it together so this is something i'm going to be thinking about for a long long time yeah, and I like that you described it as a cinematic puzzle. And, you know, when we think of other directors that might be cinematic puzzlers, you might think of a director like um, uh, Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan's building a puzzle narratively. So you're trying to figure out what how the narrative puzzles together. But David Lowry's interested in puzzling together ideas. And the narrative is pretty like is pretty cut and dry. Like we, like I can tell you what happens throughout the movie, but there's so much, like you said, all those layers that make you question what the movie is, what ideas the movie is trying to present. Another thing that is that this movie does, and I won't go too deep into this because I don't want to spoil anything at this point, but there are I, I, at least two moments maybe three moments within the movie that you are questioning what is real, you know, what is, what is happening in the story or what is actually the real part of the story. And in a way it almost doesn't matter what is real for this story. It is all about uh, the ideas presented in juxtaposition with each other. And um, there's kind of a dichotomy about what this sto story is about. And uh, it's kind of giving this character played by Dev Patel two different paths that he could take at many different points in his life and how each one of those paths could diverge. And you kind of, in, in sometimes literally and sometimes you just kind of can make the, the guess yourself, you see what could happen if he took certain paths. And so I think that that is a, um, it's, a, it, I mean, I am maybe hesitant to say this, but I don't know that I have seen 
a story told this way like that ever before. And that's why this movie does feel special. It is a movie that, like we talked about this with Pig, that that was a movie that for me, it was thought provoking enough to where I gave it an eight, an eight initially, and I would still say it, it's probably an eight, but even now thinking about it, it could rise to being a nine. This is the type of movie that after thinking about it longer, you could grow to appreciate it and love it more. Um, the other thing with that though, is I know that this isn't a movie that a lot of people will enjoy. I don't think that this is something that uh, the average moviegoer is going to like because it, it's challenging in a way that maybe feels like it's just too much work for you to just go to the movie theater and think about all these different layers. Yeah, uh, that is a hundred percent accurate. Uh, I would never recommend this to somebody that I don't know. Um, and I don't know their tastes in movies. And there are a lot of people that I know their tastes in movies. And I know that I couldn't recommend this movie to them. Um, because yeah, it's, it, it challenges you in a way that the average moviegoer is not interested in being challenged. Um, but that's what draws me to directors like David Lowry. And it will, it makes me excited about what his next project is going to be because he's ambitious. He's very, very ambitious and he takes risks that don't always pay off, but are, you need to, in a way as a viewer, um, kind of reward him for taking those risks because it allows for things to happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, that is, and this will kind of carry over to what we're talking about with, uh, with the ghost story um, because that's also a very, very risky film. Um, but I do want to talk about a few things here that, are really important to the craft of this film and should get recognized. And because of the idea that this film is not overly accessible, um, there are people that aren't going to probably get recognized during award season that, that probably should. Um, number one, we already talked about cinematography. Um, number two, the score for this film mm -hmm. is hauntingly great this is by daniel hart he also did the score for a ghost story and at times it is very very different because uh, this gives the, this film such an incredible tone and you you immediately recognize the score at the very beginning of the film and it sets a tone for the the rest of the movie and at times it's abrasive but it is meant to be so and uh, I think that David Lowry is very, very conscious of the role that score plays and how you um, ingest and digest this, these films. And so I, this is the, this is when I think about uh, really recognizing scores and what they do for films this is what I'm, this is the sort of score that deserves to be recognized because without the score, it's an entirely different film. Um, but I fear that this is not going to be a score that is in the conversation and it, it certainly should be. The production design on this film is magnificent. The, between the way that the 
opening scenes, uh, use both cinematography, editing, and an amazing uh, art design for this is like it, this is craft at its finest mm -hmm. when it comes to filmmaking and uh like I, I i within five minutes of the film beginning i'm sitting there just smiling to myself in the theater because i i am just in awe over the craft of this and um yeah it had me hooked absolutely right away mm -hmm. and then we already talked a little bit about performances and uh, I think that Dev Patel is very, very good in this. Um, and his performance in a way is somewhat nuanced. And uh, there are the little things that he does that are absolutely fantastic and shows that he is a top-notch actor that someday should have the opportunity to really be recognized for being a fantastic actor um it won't be for this film despite the fact that it is pretty good but i think alicia vikander is the standout here and part of it's because she plays these dual roles um and she she they're they're very very different from each other like the the two different sort of this this uh comparison of um economic status really comes into play but she plays these very very different characters that clearly have different personalities and uh in particular there's a scene where she is it's kind of a flashback scene um after he's got started his journey where he is talking to her and her performance in that scene is so good and the uh emotion that you see in her face as she kind of recognizes um, her place in his world mm -hmm. is absolutely fantastic. And if anybody deserves to be recognized for this film, I think it's her. And she, she frankly should get a supporting actress nomination for this movie. That, that I like that you brought up that scene. That scene is so good for a variety of reasons. One, her performance is really great in that scene. Two, I think that that is actually one of the scenes that has maybe some of the better writing, uh, in in just in just how it's it's set up to tell to help with the story. Yes. Three, I think that that is a moment where we get to see David Lowry showing the small, the intimate, really well, as opposed to doing these big landscape and big epic scope shots. Um, and then four it comes at a weird time in the movie. He's already started his journey, but then we get this flashback. So, I mean, I think that that scene is really critical and her performance is uh, important to the, to the movie. And I, I agree hundred percent that she is the, the standout in terms of performances. I, it, it's, I think Joel Edgerton's great. It's kind of, he's kind of what I wanted to see more of within that uh, sequence. Um, but Alicia Vikander, she has this ability to, and you, you can see it in her, her performances before this as well. I think Ex Machina, she does this really well in too, where she is good at convincing you that she is innocent. She's good at convincing you that she is also malevolent at the same time. Yep. And uh, you don't really know sometimes where she stands and even when she is this uh this character that is of the lower economic status 
there's something about her that you mistrust in a way. And I think that that is deliberate in the performance. And, but, and, and you see it in both characters, even though they're different characters that she plays. And, and maybe at the same time, you're supposed to believe that they're the same character. You know, like it's, it's, it's one of those movies that even though there's so much ambiguity there, it's that adds so much depth to how you interpret and understand the story. So I think that that she makes this movie so much more uh, special. And I agree with that entirely. I do also want to talk about uh, the actor Barry Keegan, who is the kind of child, the uh, kind of ornery child that shows up midway through the film. And um, this character to me is just super interesting. And I wanted this character to be in the film more than it actually is because like there's, the performance is just very good and makes you feel a certain way about the situation and then based upon what happens kind of uh, backs that up and a lot of that is because this performance is just so good Um, and makes that sequence so much more interesting than it probably even deserves to be yeah he is of of upcoming actors he is maybe at the top of the list for the actor that is the most unsettling to watch in any scene, not because he's he himself is doing anything that's super unsettling. He does some things in, every, in a lot of movies that I've seen him in that are strange, but I just think there's something strange about him. <laughs> like, and he adds a strange quality um, to the movie and uh, he's, it, it, it's, it's, fun because he's a character that you end up not liking and I'm not going to say too much more than that but uh at the same time he's so fun to watch you know (laughs) like so it's it's I always like those types of characters yes yes uh and yeah that's what makes it makes movies fun um and the thing about a lot of movies is that writers don't seem to want to write interesting characters that are only briefly in movies very often there anymore it seems like uh there is this idea that any supporting character needs to have uh, more time in the film and even though i said i wish that he was in this film more if he was in this film more it probably ruins the experience that we have um and what makes it so special and so uh yeah this is this is just one of those roles where i feel you know this makes the movie kind of takes it to a different level um and it's because it's such a a small portion of of the entirety of the film um so yeah I, there, there are just, there are so many good things about this movie and I wanted to give it a higher score, but because of some of that inaccessibility, um, I felt like, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't give it more than an eight. Um, and this is exactly the sort of movie that, uh, for cinephiles or people that really, really just love the craft of filmmaking, um, this is an extraordinarily special movie for those types of people because it rewards them for uh, 
putting in that time and caring more about the narrative are caring more than just about the narrative, which is often the case for a lot of uh, people that watch film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, once again, I think I will be reviewing this film again uh, in terms of just sitting down and seeing what I can pick up through a second viewing. Um, and yeah, I, I'm excited to do so because I think that it, it will allow me to unpack some things that I was unable to unpack because I didn't know where the film was going the first time around. Uh, and I, I think it is one that if, um, if you're willing to see it the first time, if you're willing to sit through an, a movie that might not be accessible hundred percent, it's one that will ask you to watch it again just because it's that's just the nature of the movie all right so we're going to take a quick break here and then come back and we're going to talk about a ghost story um very likely we will be bringing the green knight back in and we may be spoiling some aspects of the green knight so if this is a film that you are interested in seeing and don't want those spoilers now might be a good time to uh walk away from this on top of the fact that we will be spoiling aspects of a ghost story as well. So um, if you are in it for the full ride, stick right there and we will be right back. Let's wrap this all up under the blanket of someone thinking this is something that they'll remember me for. And they did and we do. And sure enough, we do what we can to endure. We build our legacy piece by piece and maybe the whole world will remember you, or maybe just a couple of people, but you do what you can to make sure you're still around after you're gone. And so, we're still reading this book. We're still singing a song. Kids remember their parents and their grandparents, and everyone's got their family tree, and Beethoven's got his symphony, and we've got it too. And everyone will keep listening to it for the foreseeable future, but that's where things start breaking down because your kids, do you have kids? Wait, who here has kids? You, your kids are gonna die. Yours too, yours too. Hey, just saying, they're all gonna die and their kids will die and so on and so on. And then there's gonna be one big, one big tectonic shift, Yosemite will blow, and the western plates will shift, and the oceans will rise, the mountains will fall, and 90% of humanity will be gone. One fell swoop. This is just science. And we are back, and for our third part of the show today, we're going to be taking a look at David Lowry's movie, A Ghost Story, from 2017, and we're going to be talking about this in comparison to The Green Knight, we thought that would be a good uh, way to kind of frame both of these movies to discuss. So naturally there's going to be maybe a little bit more spoilers uh, conversation of the green Knight, And we will likely get into some spoiler conversations of the, uh, a ghost story as well. Um, a ghost story is uh, about um, a lot of things, but the IMDB uh, description of the story is, In this singular exploration of legacy, love, loss, and the enormity of existence, a recently deceased white-sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to try to reconnect with his bereft wife. Now, that feels almost so simple 
to say it just like that for where this movie goes because this movie is seen is a lot about a lot um what i'll say to begin is that i really love this movie um i gave this movie a nine out of ten and i'll talk about a little bit why i gave it nine out of ten in a little bit but um i'm curious to know for you at what point in this movie does this movie go from being solid to really good? Or maybe you didn't enjoy it this that much and you decided that this is not a really good movie. Okay, so uh, I want to kind of go back to something we talked about in the last segment <clears throat> with this movie. And the first time I watched this movie, I gave it an 8 out of 10. This time, I seriously considered bumping it up to a 10 out of 10, but ended up landing on 9 out of 10. Um, and this is very much because of how David Lowry is as a filmmaker in that he wants you to see his movies more than once. He wants you to, and that in some cases there may be um, some folks that believe that a movie shouldn't rely on your the necessity to see something more than once. And in many cases, I agree, but it's not as if I didn't appreciate either of these movies the first time I watched them. They just become more rich as you allow yourself to kind of soak in everything that they are trying to say. And you're never going to soak it all up. And so it makes it... Um, makes that repeated viewing that much more enriching uh, for you as a, as a film watcher. And so the part of the movie where it, it really takes it to another level for me is when there is a clear division between it being their story, Rooney Mara and uh, Casey Affleck's story, and turning it into this universal um, sort of world where things happen well beyond the confinement of these two people's lives, and how uh, everything works kind of in this fluid existence where it is not necessarily uh, held to the standard of time and uh, the kind of experiences that other people have within the same realm. Mm -hmm. And I know that that ends up being very, very complicated when I am saying it. And I, I understand that for somebody who has not seen this film, that that doesn't entirely make sense. And as you're reading that, that uh, kind of summary of what this is about, yeah, it simplifies it, but there's no other way to really explain this because you have to experience it. Mm -hmm. There are very few movies that are made that just a pure summary can't even come close to touching what the experience of this film actually is. And until you sit down and watch it, you're not going to know what we're talking about. And that is what makes this film so extraordinarily special 
on top of the fact that it examines an idea that none of us really know anything about, including David Lowry, but something that in some way, shape, or form, every single one of us considers uh, about what happens to us after we die Mm -hmm. and the kind of supernatural aspect of that. And what's um, maybe more interesting about this is that it, it, in a way, examines kind of the, the, the film is almost postured sometimes as a horror film. And uh, it examines in a different way some of these ideas that we often explore in horror films, but in a very unhorror-like manner. And that also kind of draws into just the whole of this concept and why it, it lands in a way that just leaves you like almost with your jaw just dropped to the floor um, from essentially the middle of the movie till the very last scene. Um, And from a writing standpoint, this screenplay is so much more tight than the Green Knight in what it is trying to say in how it is uh, delivering that message to you. Not to say that there aren't numerous opportunities for your mind to explore different ideas that go beyond what maybe even David Lowry is thinking. Um, but uh, this is a very, very special film. And uh, I, I'm glad that I got a chance to revisit it so many years after, because this movie was a 2017 movie. I haven't seen it since 2017. And to get to revisit specifically after, because I watched this movie after uh, seeing The Green Knight again. Um, I think The Green Knight maybe even gave this movie gave me a greater appreciation for this movie than I had previously. Yeah, I, I think it's right on that you said that you thought about giving this a 10. I think that that is not out of the realm of a, con- a conversation uh, because it is, it is a, I th- it like floors you, I think, by the end. Um, and I think the huge part of that for me personally, and I think a lot of people could experience this movie totally different because so much of it is up to the interpretation of the per- of the audience. But a huge part of why this movie hit me really hard is that this movie actually gave me comfort about what happens to us after we die. Like, I, I think that during a lot of the movie, you can feel so um, heavy and you can feel so dejected and depressed about that. But ultimately where this movie goes, it, it in a lot of ways gives you a sense of that there's a purpose beyond your, your life on earth. And uh, that to me is what makes this, I think such an incredible experience to, to watch this movie is it, it takes you literally from the bleakest feeling to something that feels ultimately kind of hopeful by the end of it. And nothing really has changed in terms of the actual like lives of these people. And that's kind of the amazing thing. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you, you know, we talked about how there it is, there's a definite turn in this movie and that's where this movie gets to that 
place where it's like, oh my gosh. But before that turn, I was like, not really sure what, where this movie was going. I wasn't really sure what to think of it at that moment. I was like, oh, is this just wasting my time? Because there's a lot of scenes where you're just watching them and you're just sitting there. It moves very slow. And I mean, I think a, a lot of people might say that The Green Knight is a slow moving movie, but I would say the first half of a ghost story is even slower because it is really showing you the mundane aspects of life. And we can talk specifically about the scene in which Rooney Mara is eating like an entire pie um, and it does not really cut except for once where she sits down and that's I think the only cut really in um, that sequence. And then there's a scene where they're lying in bed together that's very drawn out. But I think it's those moments upon rewatching it and really understanding that you're viewing this really from the perspective of the ghost, right? Yep. That's, it, that's the trick of the movie is you're not really sure whose perspective you're following until halfway through the movie that there are those slow moments in life, that there are those mundane moments that you're just sitting there experiencing it. Um, and so I think that's something that's really special to think about and purposeful uh, when you look up, look at it a second time around. Yeah. And I think that part of why this movie is uh, better than the green Knight is because it allows you to emotionally attach yourself to these people and these characters. Um, and a lot of that is because of those slow mundane moments. Cause you're watching this and the longer you sit there, if you allow yourself to, you start to connect, you start to recognize kind of what that that person is feeling in the moment and can kind of put yourself a little bit in their place. And then that's where it starts to tug on your, your heartstrings a little bit. And uh, it allows you to marinate in what's going on. Um, and I, in a way, like getting to compare this to a green night, at some points in, in a green night, it feels like they steal that from you um and there are moments there there's one in particular scene where uh that you can tell that this is the same cinematographer uh when he's in the forest and he's all tied up in the green night he's in the forest and all tied up in the way that the camera moves around within there and just kind of lets us sit for a little bit uh that's the same sort of feel that we get here in a ghost story for a lot of these different scenes early on in the movie in particular um but I almost would have, and I don't know that it's used as effectively in the green in, a, in the green night in that that moment, but I would have almost um, liked to see a little more of that in a green night in order to really connect with these characters uh, and kind of take take me to a, another level emotionally with that story, um, mm -hmm. because this movie, a ghost story does not work if we don't have some emotional attachment in recognizing that these are real people that are feeling real, actually everyday average things, mm -hmm. things that a lot of people in this world feel. And it allows us to really um, 
watch these performances and see the emotion because nothing's being said. There's very, 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 very little dialogue in this film. Um, And it it is all about the performance and what you can read by their posture, by their body language, by their facial expressions, um, by their interactions with each other. And uh, in, in that makes that, that performance by Rooney Mara, which I think this is Rooney Mara's kind of shtick is being, uh, kind of in these melancholia type films. Um, but she's very, very good in this. Mm-hmm. And it's not some over the top performance that we often think about when we think about great, great performances. It's very subtle, but she is so good in the way that you know exactly what she is feeling just because we're sitting there watching her. And to ask a actor to perform for that length of time without cutting away just kind of takes it to a whole other level. Yeah. And I think that is the biggest thing that makes this a better movie than the green Knight is that these are emotions that we have experienced and we all can relate to in a lot of ways. And so that's what is such a big connection with. And I think you you talked about the performances it's pretty bold to tell a story where you're covering an actor's or I don't even know if it is Casey Affleck under there for most of the movie, you know, like I would imagine it doesn't doesn't matter. Yeah. And, um, and maybe he insisted on being, (laughs) but I doubt it. Part of me feels like that would be a waste, but um, the, the, the thing that is bold about that is that you don't, get a performance really it relies on the director then to be able to show proximity and the editing of shots it relies on the editing so much more to be able to show emotion and and to to be for people to to kind of do that but then the other thing that that allows is it gives us the audience a canvas to allow them to project their own emotions their own feelings onto the ghost we become the ghost in this story The the movie ends when the ghost moves on to another place essentially and we don't experience that any further and so that's uh i think something that's really special another aspect that i love in movies is i like anytime a movie can uh show a character that's on the side that doesn't really get any attention other than maybe a couple scenes and you understand as an audience that there's a whole other life that is existing with that character and in this movie there's a there's three sequences maybe where we see another ghost in a house that are nearby and we understand that that's a whole other life that exists a whole other untold story that we don't need to be told but we can project what is that life like? And I think that that sort of storytelling is always so interesting to me because it allows you as the audience to see that this movie is bigger than just this story, but it also allows the character to recognize that they're not alone in their journey or recognize that they're not the only one, they're not the center of this world. And that I think is such a cool uh, aspect of storytelling. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and 
kind of stepping back, but then coming back to this idea, the concept of putting a person in a stereotypical ghost costume and making that kind of the centerpiece of this film is an incredible risk, an incredible risk that when this film was advertised before I had seen or heard anything about it, I'm like, well, there's no way they're pulling that off. That's dopey. Yeah. There's like, that. it's too campy. Like that, that is not believable, but it works here. And it works in a way that I never could have imagined that it works. And that's one of those areas where David Lowry takes a massive risk with something that could have fallen flat, but because he does it so effectively, um, that doesn't bother me at all. No. Uh, I recognize while I'm watching it that this is like, I, I think this is an incredible risk and he is nailing it. And uh, one of the things that I found really interesting is the way that he brings that ghost sheet into this character and makes it a part of uh, like the natural uh, aspect of something that has happened to them because it is just the sheet that is covering his dead body um, Mm -hmm. when he's at the morgue. And then that becomes his ghost sheet. And the other ghost that we see the sheet that they're wearing has a different pattern on it. Yeah. And so that has, that, that's some other aspect. We don't know the story of that, but that kind of ties into what you're saying is that because we know that uh, the uh, Casey Affleck's character's uh, sheet comes from this place, we know that there's a story behind why that ghost's look is a little bit different. The other detail that I really liked about that is throughout the the life of the ghost, you can see that sheet get dirtier and dirtier. Yeah, you know, like it, yes. it accumulates dust and grime and all this stuff, right. and so it is kind of again. This movie's about time and about aging and all and life and just the our trajectory as people, um, and I think that that adds an element to that. Um, I kind of think, I mean, we can talk about other aspects of a ghost story specifically with this, but I kind of want to start getting into more specific comparisons between the Green Knight and a ghost story. And I'm interested in knowing, I want to know, what do you find as really similar, first of all, about these movies? And then we can talk generally about the differences and then we can say what works in either or, or the other. What, what are some similarities that you see between the Green Knight and Ghost Story? Well, just kind of the first thing that I noticed between the two is that David Lowry is not interested in making a movie that isn't about some greater concept, mm-hmm. that is not concrete, but extremely abstract in playing with it that abstract nature in a very concrete world and uh i think that for me though that is the number one uh kind of similarity between the two and other than um just his construction of film in the way that he constructs film with uh inspiring visuals that are interesting uh very tone inducing scores um 
other than that, these films are very, very different from each other. Mm -hmm. And that he is also very interested in uh, telling a different story um, that isn't just repeating the same trope over and over and over again. Um, and I, I didn't get a chance to see any of his other films, but uh, I am interested in eventually getting to those other films and to see if I, I receive those movies in the same sort of way where I recognize what he is ultimately getting at, but uh, being able to say, these are very, very different from each other. And he's made a unique project over and over and over and over again. Right. The, and the, like you said, it's he, the conceptual level of his stories is what he's interested in. And I would say the other thing that's similar is I would say in a lot of ways, the structure of the story is similar that uh, ghost story more so than the green Knight. the ghost story seems like it has two distinct parts to the movie. Whereas green Knight feels like there's multiple parts in there, but there's in both movies, there's a moment where, things just start to ramp up and time speeds up and you just start to see things and it's almost montage but it, you get these big like grand look at what's happening on a grand scale and I think that's really interesting to see that as maybe like a a, a, a maybe stylistic thing in the in the way that he tells a story is is using time over um a long period of time to be able to show the big structural changes well, that happen. And just giving us very, very minuscule moments mm -hmm. that give us enough to truly understand what is happening. Right. It doesn't have to give us very much in order for us to understand what is going on. And there, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just that I am not uh, engulfed enough in um, more, independent filmmaking but i can say that up to this point there is nobody that makes movies like him he has a very very unique style to the way that he uh tells a story that it isn't necessarily interested in giving us just this linear uh view of what is happening and i think about we we talked about christopher nolan a little bit earlier where um, there are aspects that are similar in terms of kind of that puzzle storytelling, but Christopher Nolan gives us almost too much information at times um, and almost insults us as a audience member. I, like, I, I'm not sure you're going to understand this, so I'm going to straight up tell you what it is. Uh, Verse what David Lowry is doing is giving you as little as he possibly can, and then sometimes not giving you quite enough, um, yeah. and and letting you kind of decide how to piece it all together. Right, and I I think that any art form that makes you ask questions is worthwhile to experience and it makes me so excited to see the movies I haven't seen by him. I know that they are going to be different. I think these are kind of more of his original takes on these things. And so I'm, it will be interesting to see what he, what his other movies are like. Um, but 
at the very least, I am excited to see what he's going to do in the future. Um, something I, I thought about during our conversation today is that I, I think that in a lot of ways, a ghost story and the Green Knight are like polar opposites of stories in a lot of ways in terms of their structure might be really similar at times, but the story that they're telling is different. A ghost story is ultimately kind of about destiny. And at least that's how I interpret it is that like we have a, a specific purpose that we are all kind of made out to achieve whether or not we achieve that. I don't know, but in this, this story, that seems to be what is proposed. Whereas the green Knight's kind of like a choose your own adventure story, because I thought about that in the sequence where we see the, him tied up and we kind of can see well, if he doesn't do anything now, this is where he's going to end up. Right. And continually see those forks in the road of like, this is what's going to happen if he doesn't do X, Y, or Z. Um, and this happens, so that caused this thing to happen. And so, and choice is a huge part of what that story is about. The choice to initiate the quest, the choice to, but, but at the same time, there's a big question in The Green Knight that there's his mother character that seems to be behind this whole thing. And that then begs the question about destiny and choice as well. So there's definitely an element to his movies where he's interested in destiny versus choice. And um, it seems like these are opposites, but at the same time, they could be more similar. I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah, in a way, though, that's kind of his style is that it allows you to interpret it in multiple different ways. And the thing about Green Knight is um, he's definitely saying something about kind of, uh, well, he, he's, the Green Knight lends itself to kind of flip the Arthurian classic story of the knight on its head, because the idea of a knight is that to make a true knight, a knight makes the right choice every single time. And that there's kind of this mold that they fit in. And uh, Sir uh, Gawain is kind of the anti-knight, and uh, which, which allows us to um, look at the way that we see the world around us and how a lot of times we... Uh, put make our choices based upon what we think others want us to make. And uh, I think that's a really, really interesting dialogue that David Lowry is having, not only within the realm of Arthur's court, but what that means for the world as a whole. Because in many cases, we kind of fit the mold where we try to fit a mold based upon what society is saying that we should do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing to do and that, that there should be some choice in there. And uh, even though he's presented with different choices, like that's kind of, um, there, there clearly is this idea of, uh, yeah, he maybe made the right choice here in order to continue on, but is that really the right choice? 
or is it the right choice based upon a societal standard? Mm -hmm. And in a way, there's a little bit of that conversation that is taking place in uh, a ghost story as well, especially as we move from kind of these experiences within this house from one group of people to the next group of people to the next group of people and their philosophy on life and how they kind of interact um, with, with the world around them. And uh, just being kind of unaware of things that aren't directly in front of us and how not everything is exactly as it seems. Right. The, uh, and this will be probably the most definitive spoiler. And I'm just cu mostly curious what you think about the ending of the green Knight. Do you interpret the ending as him being him actually having made the right decision and then saving his own life because of that? Or what, what do you, what do you, I mean, well, does the reality matter, I guess? It, it doesn't because ultimately the Green Knight is an allegory. It's not meant to fit in a real world. What we see is not real. I mean, it's, it, it just, that's, it's, it's meant so, to be a lesson learned and so my my interpretation is that uh he ends up getting his head chopped off um and because he recognizes the consequences of not um and it's just another choice that he makes and you know life has in a way i think that he's trying to make a statement about us trying to cheat uh, the natural aspects of life. And um, in the end, like we're all going to die at some point in time mm -hmm. and trying to kind of cheat around that uh, is foolish. And I, I think that that is sort of the, at least that's how I interpreted it. Um, and that he didn't want to give you a definitive ending to allow you to kind of uh, arrive at whatever lesson that you pull away from what is happening. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because I interpret it that he passes a test essentially at the end. And that's, that's how I view it. And, but um, he definitely passes a test. Like that's the idea is that he is almost noble in the decision that he makes, but you think you think even still he ends up dying at the end. He was foolish to take the journey in in the first place. Right. Well, and there, and, are, there are consequences for that. But the the question that is interesting then is this question of you are um, we we are never able to live up to the standards that we set for ourselves. And like, we all desire to be the courageous, honorable person, but at every step of the way, the people that we interact with and the choices that we make are often not honorable. And we don't get rewarded for that. We right. don't get rewarded for not being, uh, for being honorable most of the time. And in this case, he's they're recognizing that he's honorable 
And in your interpretation is they recognize that he did the honorable thing, but that still led you to die. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that that is, you know, I, it's definitely a critique of our world and I, life is not fair mm-hmm. and the decisions we make in life ultimately have a, an impact on us. Um, and once again, it does not save us from our ultimate demise, which eventually is going to come, uh, one way or another. Um, and I, I, I like the fact that that kind of gets left that way mm-hmm. because even still, like he was going to have his downfall, but he was going to negatively impact so many other people in the process of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the only people that truly cares about him, uh, he completely throws under the bus in that alternate world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, they, I think that there is this sense of kind of the simplicity of life and just because something is simple doesn't mean that it's worse and uh there's that the other thing that uh, i think you can view the green knight through uh and i know now we're going back to the green knight but now that we're kind of in spoiler territory um is that there's this lens of looking at it from an environmentalism standpoint Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I definitely see it show up multiple times throughout one reason that I'm really looking forward to watching this movie again is I'm going to hopefully watch it, uh, at home with subtitles. So I know exactly what they're saying because I lost a lot because yeah. of accents and just because it's kind of convoluted. Um, and so being able to dissect some of the things that they're saying and their purpose, but, um, I, I kind of see this lens that you can look at this film through as being a critique on, uh, how humans we take and take and take and take and take and expect to be able to continue on. But as we're killing the world around us, ultimately we are killing ourselves and that mm-hmm. there is this, uh, you know, sense that we we may feel entitled to being able to take these things and continue our lives. But all of these kind of side characters are maybe representative of ways in which the earth gives to us mm-hmm. and we don't return that. And I, I think with the Joel Edgerton character, um, you can maybe interpret that a little bit. Like he's like, I'm providing you all these things. What are you going to give me back? Right. And uh, I, I, I think that that would, that is an interesting um, kind of lens to view this film through and i think it's all like it it almost have you almost have to view the film through that lens all by itself and not take a look a lot a lot of the other areas but uh i'm very interested in being able to revisit this film through that lens and i again looking at it through different lenses i think that the socioeconomic lens too and the idea that you do not do something unless you expect something in return. And so that's the, the whole idea with the Barry Keoghan character yeah. is he does him a kindness. So he respects some sort of payment for that kindness. And yeah. 
um, that is, I think, crucial to a lot of the um, exchanges that uh, the or that uh, Gawain has with um, other characters in the story. You were going to say something real quick. Yeah, like the Saint Winifred character. Yeah, um, where like he has this opportunity to try to help this kind of lost soul um mm-hmm. and I, that kind of ties in a little bit with the ghost story where mm-hmm. it's this person that's kind of tortured beyond death and there needs to be some resolution and he has an opportunity to resolve this um because it's the right thing to do and it seems like he's going to do it but then he turns to her and asks well what are you going to do for me Right. Um, and it's kind of being flipped on. It's like he, it's now he's in the opposite position here. Right. He um, was that somebody did that to him. So now he's going to do it to somebody else. And then she comes back and says, why would you ever ask me that? Or yeah. something like that. And uh, and so then he kind of learns his lesson in that moment. Right. Um, the the yeah. and it's interesting because that scene, I thought about a ghost story as well because of just the the actual ghostly character but then the scenes at the castle where there's a third character besides Alicia Vikander and Joel Edgerton and you she does not say anything she's a merely like a an observer that it seems like only Dev Patel's character can see um that was very evocative of uh, a ghost story as well um I, as we talked about the ending of uh, the Green Knight and just the ambiguity of that, our interpretations of that, I kind of wanted to reflect that back onto a ghost story and how that movie ends. There's this key aspect of the story that uh, Rooney Mara's character has left some sort of written message on a piece of paper within the house that the ghost is eager to read what was written in this message. Um, it doesn't matter what's in that message, but do you view that message as being crucial to his destiny or like that something he read there unlocked or like finally completed his journey on earth or how do you interpret that moment? Yeah, uh, clearly whatever's on there was enough for him to be able to move on. Um, and I, th- I think that one of the things that Lowry is saying here is that it doesn't really matter to anybody else. We kind of all have our own things. And once again, it goes back to this idea of, and, and I, I reflect on my own life and how I've spent so much of my life uh, worried about fitting into the mold and Mm -hmm. kind of projecting other people's lives onto my own and uh that's not how it is like we all are unique individuals and we all have our own things that fulfill us and uh kind of this idea of even beyond death um having this fulfillment and being able because he leaves earth this character leaves earth unfulfilled because he kind of they there's this um even though there we we find out that they've come to this agreement uh about uh leaving this house because that's kind of their fight throughout 
um, while they're living. Uh, and right before he dies, they kind of come to this agreement. But there's still some things like kind of rocks unturned. Um, and uh, there's this necessity, I think, for him to completely live that out, whatever that might be. But it is not up to us as separate individuals to judge whatever he needs, mm -hmm. whatever fulfills him. And uh, I think that in a way makes that ending more special that we don't know what it says, um, but we know that he's now at peace. Right. And move along. I, I think it's crucial that we don't know. I, that's, it's important that it's amb ambiguous, but the other question that I have is do you interpret that he could have left and moved on anytime? Or do you think, or, or, or is it that he was needed something that would allow him to move well, on in some way? It, to me, because of a specific scene earlier in the movie, to me, it is about choice. Okay. <laughs> And I think that ties, and I think that ties in a little bit with the green, our, our conversation about the Green Knight, because we see after the houses get bulldozed, that he's not ready to give up on whatever he's searching for. But the other ghost, he at that point recognizes that whatever he's looking for is not coming, and so it's ready for him just to move forward. Yeah. Because they they have this telepathic communication with each other. And he's like, they're not come, or they're, he says, like, they're not coming back, or they're not returning, or he makes some comment, the other yep. guy makes some comment, and then he disappears. And, like, he's ready to move on. Yep. Uh, but the Casey Affleck ghost ends up remaining there well beyond uh, the, what that neighborhood is. And right. uh, we even get the time loop where it goes back to the beginning. And he is reliving the entire thing all over again, yep. um, which is a very, very interesting concept in, a, in of itself is that he plays with this idea of time and how, um, in a way, it, it almost is even more calming uh, to think about death in this way, that if there's something that we're searching for um, beyond uh, this life, and that we can't be truly at peace until we find it. There's a second chance um, that you kind of loop back around and get to relive it again. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of ties a piece of what we learned earlier in the movie together with the piano. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, like it, there clearly is a letting go sort of mentality here in that he needed that peace of mind, even if whatever he read on that slip of paper was insignificant, he needed that peace of mind in order to be ready to let go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it's, it's sort of also too that it was a tangible way for him to interact with her before one last last time in a way too and um yeah. I don't know I, it, it's a I think in some ways maybe 
maybe it hands a little bit more to you than the Green Knight, but I think more than anything, the Green Knight is just much more complicated. Um, but both movies have so much to say, I think, and they're great movies for having conversations about because so much relies on the interpretation. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Sometimes for movies that are too loose, like I, a lot of Terrence Malick movies, I can't stand because there's just not enough there um, yeah. for me to, to really get my teeth into. It, it's almost, it's, it's so loose that it could be about anything. And that is when a story I think is not good is right. when it can be about anything. I, and I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I do want to bring up a couple things in a ghost story that I think are really, really important to the way that we uh, digest them. And uh, one is there is a scene where there's a party taking place in the house. And this actor, Gary, Ol or not Gary, <laughs> Will Oldham, um, he has this really philosophical conversation and I think it's a fantastic performance. Um, and, uh, but it, it kind of underscores one of the themes of this film about uh, the materialistic aspect of life and how we make so much of life about kind of living up to this, uh, to be somebody or to mm -hmm. contribute something to this world. Um, and there's also kind of this, uh, idea of legacy outliving us and, um, but in the end, does any of it really, really matter? Um, and I think that that is an absolutely great scene that if that's not in this film, it, it loses an element that makes this movie that much more special mm -hmm. um and it also kind of in a way that uh this is david lowry changing uh the tone a little bit in certain places yeah, because there's the previous scene where he is essentially haunting this young family mm -hmm. um and like that's a completely different tone to uh what we see here in this scene and kind of this understanding of uh, everything being bigger than us. Um, and so before I move on to this next piece that I wanna talk about, did you wanna say anything in regard to uh, that, those, those scenes and in particular that kind of philosophical scene? Yeah, the monologue is maybe the most important part because it's one of the few times where the dialogue really matters too. And it's not like it's just giving us exposition, but it, it is crucial to understanding what this movie is about. It's also funny because that scene is like, if I were at that party, I'd be so annoyed by that guy. <laughs> but based on everything that you've seen in the context that you see that, that moment in, you're like, okay, for the perspective of the ghost, this is like a really poignant moment for him to be able to hear this especially because he is this musician who's trying to create like a work of art that maybe lives beyond him in a way and so I I thought that was interesting to kind of view it through that lens 
Yeah, and that's kind of my next point here. First of all, the score in this film is fantastic. I love the score. The score was probably my favorite score of the entire year in 2017 because it just fits the tone and it's beautiful and it has a lot of really uh, just great moments. There's a song on the score called The Secret in the Walls um, that takes place as uh, Rooney Mara's character is about ready to leave. And it's just so beautiful and engulfs me as a viewer um, and does things to me emotionally that would not be there if it weren't for this brilliant score by Daniel Hart. But there is a song in this by an artist called Dark Rooms called I Get Overwhelmed, which is the song that he is essentially writing um uh that Casey Affleck's character is writing and uh to me when I think about um the category of best original song in a film this is the type of song that I wish would get nominated because it shouldn't be entirely about the quality of the song but the role in which it plays in the film and this is so important to kind of understanding this film. And even the title, I Get Overwhelmed, uh, says something just about our, our journey in life. But something that uh, I picked up on this viewing that I did not pick up on the first time, and I'm interested if you picked it up, was that when things loop back around and he's in the pioneer days, and the little girl is writing something on the piece of paper and putting it under the rock, kind of in the same way that Rooney Mara's character talks about hiding these little notes when she um, needs to feel some sort of comfort. Mm -hmm. A little girl is humming this song, I Get Overwhelmed. And, really? and so it, it allows David Lowry as a filmmaker to build off of what is being discussed in that philosophical scene uh, about how um, these songs like have the, this impact on a different time, but the fact that it loops back around to uh, a time before, I felt like was really, really interesting. And it was so subtle. And I, I wasn't sure entirely that that's what she was humming at first. Um, and, uh, but like it, it was just way too close to, uh, for me not to pick up on it this time. Um, but uh, I think that adds a whole other layer that's super nuanced in something that you don't necessarily pick up on unless you're looking for it or if you've had repeated viewings. Well, and that also, for me at least, re uh, just kind of reinforces the idea of the destiny of him having something he he talks about how he likes that house he's drawn to that house right. Casey Affleck and that is I think I didn't catch that but that I think makes me like the movie that much more yeah yeah like that added another element for me that yep. wasn't available to me the first time that I saw it mm -hmm. um and I think it further uh proves my point that music in score matter to uh, a film's um, overall impact on on who we are. I mean, on how we uh, uh, digest some of these these mm -hmm. movies. 
I only really have a couple more things to say about a ghost story. One thing is just, I saw this movie about two weeks before seeing the green Knight, And, um, I think that it was good for me to get a feel for him as a director before going to, into a green Knight. I kind of feel like if you saw green Knight first and then this, maybe you would appreciate, uh, a ghost story that much more because it is a little bit more accessible but it also has all of the same uh, exciting elements as that director. But the other thing that I want to mention is the year 2017 as being just a really great movie year. And this movie probably would have been my, one of my favorite movies of the year, but in the same year, uh, Phantom Thread comes out by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, we get Shape of Water from uh, Guillermo del Toro. We get Call Me By Your Name, um, Luca Guadagnino. And I can't think of, the, I mean, I remember the, a tons of really great movies coming out. I think maybe Lady Bird also came out that year. Um, another movie for me that has just gotten better over time. This is a huge, great movie year. And I think maybe that's a reason why I didn't see A Ghost Story is there were so many other great movies that were coming out. But still, A Ghost Story, looking back on it, would probably be, in the top five for me. So, yeah. And it, it was for me. Um, I just, and nobody saw it. There not a lot of people saw this movie and um, that is, th I think this ties in a little bit with one of my last things that I want to say about David Lowry as a filmmaker in kind of the movies that he makes uh, in comparison to some of these bigger directors that are very good at what they do but uh, are making movies for more mainstream audiences, even if it isn't completely mainstream. Um, David Lowry has proven that you can make very high quality films with a minimal budget. Mm -hmm. uh, a Ghost Story was made for $100,000. Are you serious? That was its budget, it was $100,000. And a green and the Green Knight was made for fifteen million dollars, and fifteen million, even in our in the scope of everything, is such a small budget, especially when you think about some of the effects that they had. Even though I didn't think that the effects were perfect, and I think there were some problems with some of the visual effects that they had in the Green Knight. Um, the fact that it only cost them $15 million to make that movie is very, very, very impressive and shows that he finds a way of maximizing every single dollar that he has. Um, and I, I look at the visual effects. The fox wasn't perfect. The fox that we see in The Green Knight, uh, it looks like a, a computer-generated fox. Um, the giants, uh, they look a little funky <laughs> in everything. But when I compare this to some of these, these big budget uh, CGI heavy films um, that cost hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars, uh, I, I look at this and I say, this is on par. Like the visual effects in some of those big budget films don't look that much better and in some cases look worse. And so uh, I, I am very, very impressed with the quality of film that David Lowry can make on a minimal budget. And it is proof that you don't need a gigantic budget 
to make a great film. Uh, if you are truly a great at your craft, which David Lowry is. Yeah, and that makes me respect the costumes and the set production that much more is just how they able really to get that done on a limited budget. It's just very impressive. Yep. Um, I think that kind of wraps up our conversation today. We had a nice long conversation. This is a long episode and uh, I know that not everybody's probably going to make it to this, this uh, second half. So if you're st still around, um, thanks for sticking through with us. And even if you haven't seen these movies, um, I highly recommend seeing them even with spoilers. I think that they are very special um, and that they are the sort of movie that is movies that are going to last with you for a long time. Um, and that just says a lot about David Lowry as a, as a filmmaker and makes me really look forward to seeing the stuff he's already made, but then also what is to come for him. Um, over the next few weeks, uh, I, I don't want to announce some of the shows that we're going to have for September and beyond quite yet because I want some an opportunity to make some adjustments if need be. Um, we also might be in a situation where if COVID gets real bad again, then we might have some shifting in schedule, which would be just devastating for me as a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a film lover. I would hate to see some of these movies get pushed back even further. Um, but until the end of the month, Next week on uh, August 15th, we're going to do Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, which will be part six or seven. I can't remember what, what one we're on now. Six. Um, part six of our Wes Anderson marathon. Uh, we talked about maybe spending a little bit of time uh, discussing some of the films that we have seen since then um, that are new releases just to kind of make sure we're talking about those movies. Uh, so that's next week. Uh, the week after, we're going to do another double feature, this time of Annette and the Spark Brothers documentary. And uh, that, that will be, I think, a nice little double feature. Uh, just I think there's going to be a lot that we can talk about between the two of them um, as we learn more about these, these musicians who wrote the music for Annette. Um, and then we will end the month on August 29th with Moonrise Kingdom, uh, another one of our Wes Anderson marathon movies. Uh, and then we, at that time, you will get to learn what, what else we have in store for you. But uh, I really had a lot of fun with this, this week's episode. Um, I really like discussing these types of films and being able to dig in deep and that really uh, bring forth great conversation. So thanks for having this conversation with me this week, Danny. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed this one. All right, we'll see you next week. See ya.
Thank you.